If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the Everything 80s Podcast, Episode 30, The Story of Jenga. Jenga, Jenga. J-j-j-jenga. You take a block from the bottom and you put it on top. You take a block from the middle and you put it on top. How you build a tower, you just don't stop. You gotta build that tower putting blocks on top. And it teeters and it totters as you build it all up. It weebles and it wobbles, but you don't give up. You take a block from the bottom and you put it on top. You take a block from the middle and you put it on top. Till someone knocks it over and that's when you stop. But you start all over putting blocks on top. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And looking at a game, when I first really was thinking about Jenga, uh, I was just looking back at 80s games, I thought it was a much older game. I thought it went back to the, like, the 60s or at least the early 70s, but it is a product of the 80s. And has a, as usual with a lot of these random creations that become massive hits has a pretty interesting backstory. So we'll look at everything to do with Jenga. But if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get them automatically. Okay, let's go. So if you could sum up Jenga in like a sentence, I think it would be a simple yet infuriating game that makes you want to immediately play it again after you lose. And as a quick like summary recap here, Jenga is a game made up of 54 blocks that are removed one at a time and stacked on top of each other. It was released in 1987 and actually is considered one of the best-selling games of all time. So you remember like that crazy catchy theme song from the commercial I played at the start, you know, taking the block from the bottom, putting it on the top. And it actually remains one of the most famous jingle slogans of all time, that block from the bottom and you put it on top. And it's got its roots, Jenga does, in an ancient game. And like I said, it becomes a massive hit in the 80s. And like I don't think I've ever been to a house that doesn't have Jenga in it. You know, it just appears in every house somehow. Like You don't remember buying Jenga or getting Jenga. It's, it's like Lego. It's just you have it. You just accumulated it somehow. But it is kind of the perfect game. No matter what your age, it's a game it's one of the few games that kids can compete straight up with adults it's turned into a big drinking game now i'll get into that later you see those giant big block jenga games in a lot of bars and one of those classics that's a core part of the 80s i'd say like ranks right up there with you know the usuals like monopoly and connect four and all that good stuff so 
like in case you haven't played this or <laughs> it's been a while, you know, the entire setup, like I said, is made of 54 blocks involves taking one piece at a time, stacking on the tower. You can play by yourself or as many people as you like. It's also a game that can be over in a few seconds, but the average playtime lasts around five to 15 minutes and takes around two minutes to set it up. If you haven't, you know, kicked over the coffee table and discussed. So each block is three times as long as it is wide and one fifth as thick as its length. And that's important in the whole stacking component. Each of the blocks actually has like really small and random variations. And that's what allows them to slide out. You always wonder like some move, like they're not even in there. It's because they're not perfectly cut. And that's on, on purpose. If they were all like, you know, laser cut accurate, you wouldn't be able to play it at all. So it's all those little variations on every single block that allows it to, you know, for some of those to move so easy out of the stack. So if they were, uh, you know, if they had built it in sort of the, it makes it a tougher production process because like, you know, in a mass produced manufactured product, it's easier to put them all, you know, exactly the same cut and whatever. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated because they have to make sure there's the right uh, ratio of, um, blocks with the weird variations compared to the normal ones. Uh, so you need to have all these different imperfections in the stacking process and that each stack is a little different. And then you have to adjust to each situation. So, I mean, it's a simple concept and it looks like a simple manufacturing process, but it's actually very complicated to put the right combination into each set. So there's a little, if you remember, there's a little cardboard stand that helps you build the tower and the official rules are that the person who builds the tower gets to go first. So you can't take blocks from the top level or the level beneath it, and only one hand can be used to move a block. There's also an unofficial rule that you actually only have 10 seconds to move a block. And at every game I've played, everyone you know is taking like a minute to carefully think out their thing. But if you're playing officially, you've got 10 seconds. You lose, obviously, when the tower falls over or if any piece falls from the tower that's not the block you were trying to to move. And that's, you know, for the real sticklers of the Jenga rules. So let's look at the origins of Jenga. And like I said, like a lot of, I don't know, these classic games, you think they're like a corporate game that's dreamed up in a big pitch meeting in a boardroom with, you know, big epic game designers and, you know, you've done a ton of market research, but it's not. It was actually designed by an English woman. Her name was Leslie Scott, and she was the co-founder of Oxford Games Limited. Uh, but she grew, she was born and grew up in East Africa. So she spoke English as well as Swahili. So it was in the early 70s, and that's when the game kind of came together and more evolved within her family by using building blocks. The family had purchased the blocks from a sawmill in uh, Takoradi, Ghana, as Ghana was a huge producer of wood. So they had come up with this simple stacking game and found it to be pretty fun and actually kind of addicting to play. So Leslie played around with a few names of what to call it. The first one was Cheza, so C-H-E-Z-Z-A or Z-Z-A, depending where you live. And that word actually means to play. But it was also the name of their dog, so she looked for something else. They thought about what was involved with the game and that the whole principle was basically just to build. So the word Jenga means build, which comes from the word Kojenga, which means to build. So after they came across that 
perfect description. The name stuck and it's like, you couldn't, I don't know. It's one of once one of those things are in place and they're common name, you, you can't think of anything more perfect, but it, it just really seems like there, there couldn't have been a better name for Jenga. Some people think that it's an ancient African game, but it's not. And no such game exists. So it seems like it's such a simple concept that it must have been used for centuries before. But Scott researched everything uh, as well as, you know, living in Africa and, you know, ultimately finds out it's a completely original game. It's like one of those, it's like when you write music and the Beatles were always talking about that or, or Paul McCartney, he's he, like, he would write songs like, Hey Jude or yesterday. And he's like, it sounds too good and too familiar. Like someone must have already written this song. Like it has to exist. Like that's why I thought it up, but it, um, no, they're all original, obviously. So there were thoughts that it was an ancient Chinese game that you used to play with jade blocks or pieces or something. But this seems to not, it seems to be the same case. There just, there aren't any versions of this you can find. And if there were, I think you would see a ton of modern versions uh, versions of them. Like you would see with, I don't know, old games like jacks or marbles or dice, you know, something like that. It just, it didn't exist. So here's the first release of Jenga. It's so it's not a mass manufactured game at all. Just yet. It starts more as a grassroots project. And some of the earliest sets were made in 1982. So Scott had trademarked the name Jenga and launched the game at the London Toy Fair in 1983. She sold it through her own company called Leslie Scott Associates. So the whole thing was an English product, you know, straight up. And the original Jenga blocks that Scott had made were from a company called Camp Hill Village Trust in Boughton, or Boughton, Yorkshire. And the game was a huge hit at that toy fair in 83, and everyone liked it, all ages, um, it yeah, it appealed to older people as much as to little kids as it did to middle-aged people. And it was just the, the feedback was the love of the simplicity and that it was addictive. Like I said, like you immediately want to play it again. It's got that more ability factor, which is just the golden egg for anything with toys or games or anything like that. So now it's taking Jenga to a wider market and an entrepreneur from California named Robert Grebler was the brother of a close friend of Leslie Scott's. He saw some promise in the game and was seeing that she did too, you know, like with all the, you know, from the toy fair and all this great feedback. And she was investing her own money to market and sell it in England. So she was certain it was something worthwhile to pursue and go like, commit her life to this thing. And this guy, Robert Grebler, he picks up on that too. So he thought it would be a good fit in my country, Canada at first, for some reason, but thought since they're, you know, we're all connected on the continent, probably the Americans would like it too. I'd say as much as like we differ uh, from the Americans up here, cultural wise, we say we share pretty much everything. Like, we're watching all the same, and as kids growing up, we were watching all the same programming, the same commercials, the same networks. We have our own Canadian networks, obviously, but all the things we want to watch, like we're watching the same movies, it's the same music or whatever. So if a kid in Canada likes something or a certain toy, it's pretty much going to be the same as a kid in America or whatever. So they look at going full North American. So he gets the rights for Jenga from Leslie Scott for use in North America. So this is April of 1985. 
later that year, she gave him the full world rights. So this Grebler guy would assign those world rights to Pocanobi Associates, which was a company he put together. He was so certain of the potential in Jenga that he recruited two of his cousins to form this Pocanobi, I think that's how you'd say it, Associates in 1985, to be able to increase the distribution of Jenga. This is like putting all your chips on the table. They're like, they're full on with this thing. So Pocanobi Associates would then connect with toy company Irwin and they would be the first to distribute Jenga in Canada. So I'm Canadian, as I've already mentioned, and I didn't know Irwin was a Canadian toy company until I was looking back at all this. I had no idea. I just assumed they were up there with the usuals like Hasbro and Mattel and, and whatever. But nope, straight up Canucks. <clears throat> so here's a problem in the early stages of launching this thing North American worldwide. Grebler was on board with the name Jenga. Scott, Leslie Scott obviously was, but the name was holding Irwin back a bit. And they weren't sure about promoting Jenga if this was to be the name of it. You know, like I said, now nothing could be more fitting as the name, but I guess obviously because it's ingrained in us. At the time, it was kind of weird. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The name Jenga didn't mean anything to anyone, and it did not indicate anything to do with or what this game was. It didn't it's it wasn't called like collapse or topple. Like it, it just um, that sort of descriptive word that's going to describe what's happening in the game or like that verb, that action, like it doesn't, you don't know what Jenga is. Um, so, you know, obviously it's late, it's completely synonymous with the game, but it was actually a real concern and it was causing delays. And it wasn't, it wasn't that they were just unsure about it. They hated, they despised the name Jenga and they just said that straight up, but they loved the game. So, so Leslie Scott's trying to like work with this. Like these are the people that are going to take this game to the next level. So you want to stick to your roots and your guns, but you, you want to keep them happy. So she switched the name up a bit and it was calling it Jenga, the perpetual challenge. So now <laughs> sounds good, but it's even more of an issue because dumb North Americans like me wouldn't even know what the hell perpetual meant. Like, I mean, for a higher class or, you know, more sophisticated English person where they tend to have a much better vocabulary, vocabulary, see, I can't even say it. They, that would make sense there. But for the average, yeah, like I said, dumb kid, we, we don't know what that is. Er, so Erwin basically says no way on the, on the term perpetual um, and no way on the name Jenga. So they're at a crossroads here. As Leslie Scott describes it, Erwin's viewpoint was that, No one had ever come across the game before and you couldn't even say that it was like something else. Like you're starting from scratch here. So you can't with this weird name and there's no kind of connection to any other things. It's, it could be trouble. Irwin thought if you had a meaningless name that gave no indication how the game 
is played, then the name means nothing. They had no idea how they were going to sell, market, or advertise something called Jenga. Instead, Irwin wanted to call it Timber with an exclamation point and then possibly Tumbling, which I think I said earlier. I forgot that was actually one of the names. And I think those are actually great names. Like I think Timber might have been a better name overall. I mean, like ultimately the game is what leads to its success. But I think Timber, like if they were creating this game in North America, it would have straight up been Timber, no problem. Tumbling, I, I think those are great names, but Leslie Scott was steadfast and stuck to her guns. She said they just needed to stick with it, and one day the name would have meaning. <clears throat> so obviously a very smart cookie. Eventually, they agreed that the name would be Jenga, and they went full on with it. It's amazing they actually backed down because like, the Timber is the perfect name. Um, and I, I can't believe they actually like kind of gave in, but obviously everything works out. So now they're launching Jenga. Irwin's now embraced the name. They decided to not downplay it, but now make it a focus in the launch of the game. The key marketing phrase would be the simple great game with the strange name. They just, they're going to put it front and center and not even try and hide it. So now they got to get this thing on the market. So Jenga was a huge hit when it was demonstrated at the 1986 Toronto Toy Fair, which I didn't even know a Toronto Toy Fair was a thing or I would have gone to them. And 400,000 orders were placed that day, which is insane. So this was obviously extremely promising for its full-on release. Then an insanely catchy song and commercial were put out that you just heard, and that would help create massive interest and at the very least get that song stuck in everyone's head. And it's probably going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. And they call it an earworm, where it's that just burrows into your head and you can't get rid of it. So apologies. Jenga would be fully released in 1987. Uh, and there was still some of the distributing that was needed to be worked out. So Irwin was licensed to sell Jenga in Canada and would be the master licensee worldwide. They could then choose who they wanted to distribute the game in any different country. They just sort of um, spread it around and they just can sort of oversee it. So for the U.S., they went with Shaper Toys, which I do not remember. And they had been making toys and games since 1949. They were one of the very first toy companies to make games out of plastic compared to the paper and cardboard that was used by other companies. They, I, I kind of remember this game called Ants in the Pants. That was a game by Shaper Toys. So if you remember that, that's them. Hasbro would acquire Shaper and then would launch Jenga under their board game named Milton Bradley. Hasbro would eventually take over most of the licensing for Jenga around the world and just kind of step in and oversee everything. So with all this set up and everything in place and all these big guns, Jenga does really well right out of the gate and and continually. Um, They would sell at least 4 million units a year from 1987 up until the year 2000. That is the ultimate in a hit sustainable game or toy. The fact like if it comes out huge, awesome, whether it's a flash in the pan or not, you're happy. It was a success. If it consistently is doing the same numbers every year for like two decades, that that's getting into monster hit territory again, up with like trivial pursuit and um, monopoly, you know, now it's getting into that stratosphere. 
Okay, so here's a few other versions of Jenga. So over the years, some of these I was just not familiar with and these different sort of iterations of the game. There was, example, throw-and-go Jenga, which was made up of colored blocks and a six-sided die. There was Jenga Truth or Dare. Again, I hadn't heard of that one, and it was more of an adult version, but it was still marketed by Hasbro. It looked just like regular Jenga, but there were three different colors of blocks, and I don't even know what the hell people were doing with this. I don't think I want to know. Then there was Jenga Extreme, which used sort of parallelogram-shaped blocks that were able to create some pretty crazy-looking towers. Then there was Jenga Giant, uh, Jenga Double XL. Those are the massive ones that you find in the bars. And you can buy them on Amazon and places like that. And some of them get up to like four or five feet high. And when you play it, when you start stacking, you can get up to eight feet. So same rules apply, but you can use two hands to move the 18-inch blocks. And that leads us into, depending on your age and <laughs> what you do, the Jenga drinking game. This is also known as Drunk Jenga. The Jenga drinking game involves a normal Jenga set, but you write out various dares or actions on the block. So no one is to see them. And when you set up the tower like you normally would, you just go about it like you're playing a normal game of Jenga. So now the difference is you have these 54 blocks with 54 different twists written on them. And that can be anything from having to, I mean, who the hell knows, sing something stupid make an animal no, you know, whatever, up to other stuff. But then there are lots of shots written in, so it turns into full drinking game. I'm clearly suggesting PG versions of the challenges, but you can imagine how sketchy things get playing um, drunken Jenga or drunk Jenga. The one constant is if you're the guy or person who knocks the tower over, you have to chug your whole drink, then have to pick two blocks and carry out those actions. So that's the one big stipulation that you have to stick with it. So I'll start winding it down here. You probably weren't aware of all the interesting stuff that goes in the history of a, a game like this. And it, it always, it always is a case of something that's seemingly so simple. The process that went behind it, all the like, you know, behind closed doors sort of things. It was, it's the interesting thing with Jenga. And that's the takeaway I got from all this is that it was launched during the golden age of video games where we were now experiencing games that we never thought were possible, like the Atari, the Nintendo, Sega, the Commodore 64. All these things are completely demanding our attentions because now we have arcades in our own home and they're actually awesome. They're not crap. So, And then at the same time, this the mid-80s, this is the like the toy explosion era. All these new toys and cartoons and things vying for our attention, but a simple game is still able to make an impact. And it's amazing, you know, going back to those core sort of fundamental um, rustic kind of wholesome games are always going to be valuable. It's, you know, it speaks to its simplicity, uh, but the playability was so good that even though we were, you know, have all these amazing new things in technology, there was something special about a tower of blocks. I don't know, you know, it goes back to our childhood or something. It must appeal to our inner toddler that we're fascinated by blocks and building something up and watching it fall over. So that'll never go away. Jenga plays so well because it requires focus um, and skill and it immediately draws you in. And there's a 
there's a short learning curve. Like you don't have to play this thing for days to pick it up. Like you immediately know how to play it. It's like almost intuitive. You, you like, you see what the con, if you're seeing it for the first time, you, you, you basically have to see it once and you know how to play it. So it's got a easy barrier to entry. So here's one takeaway just regarding the gameplay strategy that I don't think a lot of people know that I wanted to leave with here. So, um, I'm sh- you probably didn't know this, but if you did, so you are allowed to use your wrist and arm to keep the tower steady while you're taking away a block. There's always the impression that you can only use your fingers to take away the blocks and, and that you can only use that one hand. That's true, but you can use your arm to actually support the tower. And this is reiterated from Leslie Scott, the creator herself, who points out that rule number nine says, no part of the player's body may touch the tower apart from the arm between the elbow and the hand. So the next time you're playing, no, you've never probably ever seen anyone do that. It's always just like careful with the one little finger. You're allowed to kind of steady and support the tower um, with your entire arm. So whenever you play it, remember Leslie Scott's got your back and you can stick it to whoever you're playing for. Or if you're playing for money or it's drunk Jenga, you're never going to lose again. Okay, let's wrap it up here. Thank you for listening. Hope you like this show. Uh, Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find podcasts. I should be there now. If you really like it, hook me up with a rating and review. That way more people get to see it. It helps out the show and I appreciate it and I appreciate you listening. All right, talk to you later.